How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, Madness Moxie, and tonight, more mutilation. We're back with another bop and a movie focused on the Saw franchise with my favorite of the series, Saw 2. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today for this bop and a movie are my co-host, Mike. Donnie Wahlberg battled a slasher villain once in cinema history, and I don't think that's appreciated enough. Donnie Wahlberg, the, the serious Wahlberg battled a serial killer on film drenched in green light that is art that is art that is cinema that is why we're here on this earth this this opens up a small debate in my mind though like are we counting jigsaw as a slasher villain like he normally gets kind of lumped in with the modern day he's lumped in incorrectly but you know everyone seems to so i just went i just went along with it he's not a slasher slashers slash the serial killer. I want to get into this more later to try and categorize this. It's it's definitely what we want to start the show with because it'll slow the whole thing down like we're stuck in molasses. And that's what the <laughs> audience demands from us. You asked the question. I did. I know. I fucked up out the gate. <laughs> I just wanted to me. talk about Donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> you and failed that's on to you. throw that shit before he walked in the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, moving past that calamity. Jamie, say hello. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't a different Detective Donnie Wahlberg also killed by Mary Shaw? Uh, are we talking Dead Silence? Yes. Uh, that's that's the man. Ooh, yeah. So, he, so he's the Bill Paxton of the, the, the James <laughs> Wanniverse? Pretty close to it, I would say yes. Why has um, Lee Winnell not used also, him again? He could have been upgraded. Uh, God, so many questions, so little time. I, I, I would like want to segue into fear itself, but we'll save that for the show. Why wasn't he invisible? <laughs> he was. You couldn't see him. He was there the whole time. <laughs> That's the plot of the uh, Invisible Man 2, soon to film. Uh, anyways, folks, as a heads up, we are going to be watching Saw 2, the unrated cut today. So if you have access to the unrated cut, that's what you're going to want to watch while we talk over it. I uh, prefer to the call it cut. the serial cut. It was weird in the commentary, like how excited they were about that serial. <sighs> 
I love that. I, I, I we'll get into it, but I love it for like an actual specific character reason. <laughs> I just love that that's me- mentioned over multiple commentary tracks. That's one of the linchpins of the creative process of Saw Two, the goddamn serial. <laughs> <laughs> it's so significant. All right, that was enough serial joking. Moving on. Also, folks, uh, if you want to drink along with us, I'm still doing the Malort kick for these movies. Uh, God help us all. Today's drink I have never tried. This is an actual cocktail featuring Jepson's Malort. I, I cannot tell you if it is going to be good or awful in a different way than just plain Malort. Uh, anyways, here's what you're going to need to make uh, tonight's drink the hard sell. You're going to need three-fourths of an ounce Jepson's Malort. You're going to need three-fourths of an ounce dry gin. You're going to need three-fourths of an ounce elderflower liqueur, like a St. Germain. You're going to need three-fourths of an ounce lemon juice. Uh, so to repeat, that's equal amounts, Jepson's Malort, dry gin, elderflower liqueur, lemon juice. Uh, and finally, a quarter ounce simple syrup. I'm assuming most of this is here to hide the Jepson's Malort. Like, you'd probably have an okay drink if you just eliminated the Malort. But here it is. I was not the one to even make this cocktail, so you can't blame me. Uh, this comes from Cocktail Chemistry Labs. Uh, God help us all. If this sucks, Brad Bold, I'm coming for you. Oh, and uh, I should include the instructions. Dump all this into a shaker with ice. Shake it like you hate yourself for making this drink. Then strain into a cocktail glass filled with ice. Uh, and then if you want to get fancy, you can take a grapefruit peel, cut out a little garnish from that, and do a twist over top to get the oils onto it. I'm still stalling because I don't actually want to drink that this, ba- this that bad. But here we go. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> There was a, a just just a the briefest flicker of hope because I just sucked this down. I'm like, if I it doesn't touch my tongue, it'll be okay. And I got the 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 lemon, I got the elderflower, a little bit of the gin, so it's kind of floral. I'm like, that's okay. And the second I had that thought, I had about a half second of peace in my mind. The malort just took over, and all the other flavors vanished. This is if someone served this to me at a bar, I I would instead of tipping them, I would steal money out of the register. They would owe me money for having drank this drink. Some people are so ungrateful I... to be alive. <laughs> Malort. <laughs> oh, yes. Me. There will be puke. <laughs> just, it's okay, John. Just fucking kill me. <laughs> it's awful because, like, I just took my second drink. You let it sit on your tongue. And again, it seems like, oh, this is a pretty nondescript okay drink. And then as soon as you swallow, the aftertaste creeps in and all you can taste is this fucking garbage pail. Jesus Malort flavor. Oh my god. Can I just say how happy I am that we're only two commentaries in and we've already gotten to the Malort has taken over. (laughs) Anyways, um, I took this one for two reasons. One, I I said I was going to do Malort drinks and here we are. It's got to be Malort. So I found a Malort cocktail. Let's try her, baby. Uh, The second part was the name, the hard sell. Essentially, that's the movie, in my mind, right? Donnie Wahlberg has to be sold, hey, just sit in this room and talk to a serial killer. Your kid will be fine if you can control your anger. Spoilers! Detective Wahlberg cannot do this. Uh, so it's the hard sell. There we go. I, I tried in some way to make this thematic, I swear. I appreciate it. I gave a little bit of effort. <sighs> God damn it, that's so much drink. It's only like three-some ounces. I don't know why this feels like a mountain. All right. <sighs> Mike, do you want to count us down to our feature presentation? Ah. <sighs> One, two, three. That one had uh, too long of a pause. I was like, it's not going to happen. He's just going to hold this hostage. 
Also, oh no, we're on the longest fuck Lionsgate logo already. <laughs> People love the this fucking logo. MCU lo- logo that the Lionsgate randomly has. I, I always think, it, for some reason, I think of uh, Hellboy the Golden Army whenever I see this. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's the Cogs. Yeah, it is. Twisted uh, Pictures logo get, is still top-notch, though. Everyone loves that one. Uh, let's get through our movie facts here pretty fast. Uh, this movie, Saw 2, I just like saying that title, uh, was directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman. Bozeman is a Saw regular. He's directed four entries in the franchise so far, 2, 3, 4, and Spiral from the Book of Saw. Uh, besides the Saw franchise, you probably know him from Repo, the genetic opera. Uh, and if you haven't seen that, it's a trip. It's a sci-fi horror rock opera. Uh, I don't have the words to describe it. I, I feel like Mike and Jamie could talk about it for weeks. Oh, God, that's what it yeah. definitely, like, in my top ten. <laughs> that, that movie oh, yeah. has meant a lot to me over the years. Yeah, it's a commentary uh, that needs to happen. It's, it's its own thing. We can't devote too much time to it because it, it needs its own area of discussion. Uh, this script was written by Lee Winnell and Bozeman. It actually started off as a Bozeman script called The Desperate. Um, I'll get into this in a little bit later, but uh, the producers got a hold of it and they decided, okay, why don't we just rewrite this as a Saw movie? Because we need a Saw movie now. The first one's going to be huge. We need a sequel ready. Uh, so Winnell helped him kind of rewrite it and turn it into something a little more Saw akin. Uh, our cast, we've got Tobin Bell returning as Jigsaw, Shawnee Smith returning as Amanda Young, and Donnie Wahlberg as our main character, Detective Eric Matthews. Uh, Wahlberg started as the founder of the musical group New Kids on the Block. Uh, he jumped into an acting career in 96. He's also appeared in The Sixth Sense, Dreamcatcher, a personal favor around these parts, I've heard, uh, and Dead Silence. Uh, Bozeman has directed episodes of the TV, uh, actually one episode of the TV anthology show Fear Itself, and one of those included Wahlberg. It was New Year's Day. Uh, oh, and uh, lastly, probably most importantly, yes, in fact, Donnie Wahlberg is one of the owners of the burger chain Wahlburgers with his brothers Mark and Paul. Mm, That's feel a Donnie it, Burger feel for it. you. I'm going to break away from the movie facts for a second because I really love uh, this intro trap. Oh, this is like the coolest the trap most... and maybe the entire series to me. It's one of the most memorable, yeah. Uh just, just the idea of bear trap kind of things or things that slam onto your face. We all get the point. It's very direct. It's simple. It's effective. It's spooky. Nobody wants stuff going towards their eyes. So the idea that oh hey, it's Doctor Gordon. Their eyeball. <laughs> uh, this Retcon is one of the producers too. Yeah, one of the producers, and he said he put the limp in for uh, a little. No, bit it's Bowsman. It's Bowsman. Oh, is it Bowsman? Oh, yeah, that was his cameo. I apparently have voice blindness because, like, in the commentary, I couldn't tell who was Donnie Wahlberg and who was uh, Bozeman. Yeah. <laughs> Bozeman has an extremely just-a-guy voice. <laughs> but in the commentary track I listened to, you mentioned uh, he denied that it was supposed to be a hint that it's Gordon. And he said he was just adding the limp to give it a little bit of flavor. Uh, I don't know how much I believe that, but uh, considering the pay dispute... Uh, it feels like Gordon was maybe an afterthought at any given time for these movies, but it's Gordon was brought in because people thought it was Gordon in the scene. Yeah. I remember IMDb had so much speculation and it was like, it's a limping doctor. It has to be the guy with one leg from the previous movie, which kind of checks. It doesn't even make which sense timeline wise. I think they they make fun of that in the commentary, one of the commentaries for the first movie of just, no, the timeline wouldn't even, no. No, Gordon's dead. 
And just right out the gate, I think it's important to establish something that like kind of blew my mind whenever I heard uh, Bowsman mention it in an interview that uh, for a significant amount of time, this was going to be a direct-to-video movie. To the to the extent where Bowsman was told about it in private, and then responding to the dude who sent him the email accidentally sent a reply all to everyone at Lionsgate that said, fucking cowards, or something to that extent. <laughs> <laughs> what One a of power the move. One of the many, many times, Bowsman will shoot himself in the foot in his career. <laughs> He's keeping himself warm with the flames wow. from those burned bridges. But seek out any movie just, made by Bowsman. He's he's very underrated. Please support Bowsman. He is what he is one of our favorites around here. The man cannot catch a break, and he deserves all the pranks in the world. <laughs> so before we get into the movie facts, I just want to casually touch on that opening one more time. I love that it really establishes the saw energy in the editing right out yeah. the gate, which would become a staple like for all the saws. You have the opening trap as part of the format, but this one, it's so good. It works. It's so effective. I love it. No, uh, no. I just want to st- st- uh, take one moment to say I'm crash. These are the boys. <laughs> <laughs> They're assholes. Uh, I also love in the commentary, they mentioned all this was filmed basically in the one warehouse they had, and this was filmed next to the warehouse, like the waterfront by <laughs> them. And all time the they got to go out there, like, Yeah, they all thought like, oh, we're going to go somewhere. We're going to do some on, like some location shooting. And then it was like, okay, everyone go outside. There we go. <laughs> uh, back to the movie facts. Our cinematographer on this entry is David A. Armstrong. Uh, Armstrong DP'd the first six Saw movies. Um also super important to the franchise as a whole because he is the guy who handed over the script of The Desperate to the producers from Saw 1. So if it wasn't for that action, we would not have Saw 2 in this form at all. Who knows what it would have been like because there was not a script ready to go. And because they had that script to adapt, we got Saw 2 within a year of the first film. Something that might not have been possible if they had to start from scratch on a brand new script. Yeah, so yeah. They immediately like hellraisered. The Saw franchise, like, no, we need a, a sequel now. Like, can we just graft Saw onto something else? And honestly, if you hadn't, like, if I didn't know that, that's something I never would have thought from the script. Yeah, according to yeah, uh, Bozeman, well. that there was like a it, rewrite from Winnell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saw and, and collaborated yeah. a lot with Bowsman in it. So it was very. They seem to have like a a good writer relationship, which is why none of the nothing seems Frankenstein together. Yeah, and according to Bowsman, if you do like read the script and watch the movie, you wouldn't really even be able to tell that they're the same thing. Yeah, it gets confusing because I've heard like characters are the same, deaths are the same. Uh, but he also said it was a page one rewrite of his script. Uh, and even I was, I was doing some searching. And if you can believe comments on Reddit, someone said they asked him on an Instagram live video once uh, if he would ever put the script for the desperate out for people to read so they can do that comparison. Uh, and Bozeman responded that he still was hoping to someday make the desperate as a separate movie. Yeah. So he didn't want to put the script out. So it must be different enough where he feels like he could just make a whole new film off of it. Yeah, he could just replace, and he had other ideas for traps that never made it to any of his movies that he could yeah. just throw into the and replace the traps that were from the script. It's like a reverse the collector. David Armstrong. 
Yeah. Uh, one last David Armstrong fun fact. Uh, he was the cinematographer on the Crypt Keeper segments for Ritual, the forgotten third HBO Tales from the Crypt movie. Oh my god. Yeah, that's a little fun. No, I know that actually. Yep. Uh, and uh, less of a fun fact, he was the cinematographer for Hellraiser Revelations, which uh, we'll skip past. There was a cinematographer by... on Hellraiser Revelations? <laughs> <laughs> Just take the money and run. Uh, isn't that funny though? Because like, you can tell, even though this is a lower budget movie, it's not like he's an unskilled cinematographer. It's like, shot incredibly well, yeah. It's very well shot for something very cheap. Uh, they've talked about in the commentaries how he was responsible for saving their ass by getting a lot of insert shots they weren't even aware they they had time to grab. He would just steal them kind of on his own. Uh, so Armstrong, I don't want to shit on in any way, but it's like, oh boy, that sucks that you're, you're working on the, the lesser-liked Hellraisers. Yeah, yeah. he deserves better, because I'm especially this film, I think, is... It's shot in a really interesting way. Like the different focuses and lenses he uses just from that standpoint is really interesting. Oh, and the camera moves so much too, which really impresses me. Cause when I think low budget filmmaking, I either think like they're doing handheld style to save money or it's like static shots, you know, cause yeah. you just can't walk into around frame, walk out of frame. Exactly. But this, like in the opening of the scene, the camera slowly pans down into that nice transition. And there's a couple of spots in here that are really interesting kind of wonders. Like the transitions are almost Edgar Wright where they bleed scenes together. That's that's like a Bozeman idea worked with cinematographer and editor, of course. So it's a team deal. But for a cheap film, it's impressive. Some of the little tricks they pulled out. Yeah, And just the cool thing of having um, for transitions, having a character walk from one set into the other because they're just like next to each other and then treating it <laughs> yeah. like it's a special effect, which is really cool. <laughs> Smart way of yeah using very limited space. Uh, rounding out our fun facts, our music is once again by Charlie Closer, uh, edited by Kevin Gruert. Am I saying that right? I think I, last time I put a hard T in that. I think that's Gruert correct. Or Grutert. <laughs> uh, somewhere, Kevin, uh, I owe you a drink. Uh, besides editing the first five films, Kevin would go on to direct Saw 6, 7, and the latest entry, Saw 10, or X. I'm not sure which one they prefer us to say. Uh, this movie was released October 28th, 2005. That is just one day shy of the full year anniversary of the first Saw's wide release, which is October 29th, 2004. Uh, the budget here was $4 million. It would go on worldwide to make $147.7 million. Pretty good return investment. Uh, and as a comparison here, the first film cost $1 million and made $104 million. So three extra million dollars to the budget, and they took home an extra 40-some million dollars. Pretty good deal for everyone involved, I'd hope. Unless you're Dr. Gordon. Uh, so we're getting a little bit of setup here with the SWAT team, right? Like we've got Riggs in here who will come on, go on to become kind of a main character later on. Riggs. Spoilers. I've always like, wondered how much of that was planning. Like, okay, what if this does well? We need to saw three. Uh, are these guys going to be main characters or were they just running so fast? They just had to pick whoever was around and be like, fuck it. I think it was guy. running fast at, at this point, at least I think by the time uh, saw three was in production and I mean, literally filming, I think that's when pieces started coming together. And that, that's why this is really the last standalone film out of everything. Also the fucking serial. We're at the serial part now. <laughs> everyone pay close attention but i just to love Kramer's that desk. <laughs> because it's the whole reason it's like spooky, it's, it was, and then he has like a fucking <laughs> blue yes, china it's, bowl. So, <laughs> it's so great but 
but that's what I love. Jigsaw notebook. But that's what I love about it, and why I'm really glad it's like put back in that. Why I think like Bozeman like loves it so much, and Winnell loves it so much is they're like cutting from the SWAT team coming in like they're going to like battle the Joker or something, (laughs) and then Jigsaw is just a dude dying of cancer eating cereal. Well, that was an idea for eating. Bell as well, right? Didn't he suggest, like, yeah. oh, wouldn't it be good if I just had, like, a bowl of a bowl cereal, cereal or something? Yeah. I think I he was just hungry on ac- set. What I love is that's accidentally a BTK reference. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, can we just talk for just a second about how amazing it is that we're only on the second movie in this franchise? And yet, in in the space of a year, Jigsaw was a big enough deal for audiences to buy a SWAT team coming after him like he's fucking <laughs> Jason Goes to Hell, Jason Voorhees. It's incredible to look back at the phenomenon that Saul was. Specifically between these two right films. The yeah. Right. People that didn't even see Saw knew what... See Saw? See what I did there? Uh, they knew what the deal was. It was just iconic enough where it bled into cultural osmosis. Also, real quick, before we get too far away from it, I love so much the carnival laughter to sim- to indicate that we have entered Jigsaw's House of Horrors. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much goddamn fun. So that puppet, uh, this version was vastly improved from the first movies, where it actually has like a little bit of like animatronic deal to it so it can move around. And uh, I believe Juan was on set for one of the days where they were filming with a Billy puppet, and he got a little upset, like, oh, come on, my puppet was just, like, paper mache for my first, like, <laughs> proof of concept film. Come on! I think in what the, in the, it's in the second commentary, uh, the second movie's commentary, that Juan points out that in the first movie you can see the little string Jigsaw <laughs> is pulling the puppet with. And now it's just a fucking robot. So this, yeah, but this, this looks so great good. to me and I never questioned the SWAT team size before, but on the commentary, they bring that up as well. When it was first written, it was a full ass SWAT team and Bozeman had to fight to get the full SWAT team in the movie. It, well, as much as they did, because the producers like, you can get four SWAT members anymore. And people are going to start questioning like, Hey, why don't they have like a helicopter or more reinforcements if this yeah. is such a big deal, <laughs> which makes perfect sense when you're on a tight budget. Uh, so they, I believe they compromised here because there's what four dead guys just in the stairwell alone, plus this attachment right here. Of- they, they did the xenomorph thing where they just the the ones that get uh, taken out are back in this room now playing different SWAT people. <laughs> <laughs> Was this the first movie to do not not the absolute first, but like the first one to kind of kick off the trend of aha the villain's been captured, but wait he wanted to be captured. <sighs> Is At least for a, like the yeah be- before the dark night, the so yeah, dark yeah. night, Star Trek into darkness. There, there's. So I mean, that's the end of seven, but right but as True. far as but like that, the big, movie built to that, yeah, the movie built around it, and this is like, I cannot tell you, I was a big Saul fan at the time. Like, I was on the official forums and shits, um, mm-hmm. all that. I remember unlocking like the motion comic uh, before the film's release. I was so into this, and this plot is like Mike porn. It is (laughs) sit in a room with a serial killer and have a conversation. It's like everything I've ever wanted out of life. And it's, and it was like, and it was a saw sequel at that. Cause I was, 
I was so interested in getting to understand more about Jigsaw. So it, it's Saw 2 is really the perfect punch up follow up to the first Saw because you end with the reveal of who Jigsaw is, what Jigsaw is. And then the second being able to reveal that fully, like, okay, let's actually spend time with him instead of keeping him in the shadows while also simultaneously having the twist be, and you didn't, and you actually still have not been with the true villain of the movie the whole time. There's a lot of plot pieces. I love to this movie. One, we have this really fun bit where, yeah, they've got the villain behind the scenes. They think they have him, or does he have them? But it's also set in this weird torture museum that he has set up, his workshop, which is fantastic. We've already seen that it's deadly. You know, there's traps all over it. So that adds like an inherent level of danger to all these scenes, even though we find out, you know, it's not really booby trapped from this point on. Two, it sets up basically the entire foundation for all the other Saw movies, like the format for them. Yeah. We, we had the first movie to run off of, but this is the one that really cements what a Saw film is. So if there's a part you think, oh, that's Saw, you're probably thinking of this movie because this is the one that made it officially canon that that's how it should be done. Yeah, to a detriment, yeah, the, the twist arguably. ending, yeah, yeah, pros and cons. Uh, you know, the first movie sets up a twist, but this one cements, no, all Saw movies have to have a major twist at the climax. You know, this one could have easily taken another route where it's just a straight movie. Oh, where wait, there was no twist. He said they the thing. They could have easily done Sorry. that. Yeah. Oh, oh, there will be blood. Then we get into the house, which is such a fun setup for a horror film. You've got the inherent drama of these people all have past, but they don't know everyone else. So you get little bits of history thrown out there. There's just, you know, all the conflict inherent in that from, from people just rubbing heads the wrong way. Uh, plus, it allows each room to kind of be its own set piece. You've got so many people in the trap, each person gets their own little set piece. Um uh, it it works so well for me in this one. I, I don't think they ever really captured the magic the same way in any of the other Saw films. No. And this is like a perfect summation of like Jigsaw as a character too. And, and this from like a writing standpoint, it's the people in the house are literal chess pieces in the game between Jigsaw and Detective Matthews. I, I, and you've never really seen like that that idea of people as chess pieces actualized in such a way outside of this film. Also, once again, the real villain of the movie is passed out in the room with everybody else and in the next, which I love subtleness of that. I think I just like this because it's so much like cube. I mean, obviously really? I yeah. cube a million times, but I love cube. So <laughs> more cube, give me more cube. <laughs> Yeah, it's and a thing that never really dawned on me that is staring you right in the face. That just I it ne I never connected the dots until this rewatch. This is still essentially a two character movie with two guys stuck in one cramped, unpleasant location, having a tense conversation, just like the first movie. It never yeah. really left that structure. It's just instead of anything with the detectives, you just have a secondary Saw movie happening. Which is ultimately that is literally a, a Saw movie. So even that is like, like even the fact that it's a flashback <laughs> is secretly kind of an allusion to the first movie, which is half flashbacks. 
God, I keep thinking this Malort drink is going to get better. Like the more I drink it and <laughs> it's not happening. I, I feel the way the walls look in this movie. <laughs> also, would you it say this is the last time? Set. I know. <laughs> uh, it feels like it just smells like pee. Um, would you say this is the Stale last piss. time Jigsaw is straight up evil? Oh, yeah, totally. Because he is still a bastard in this, and I really do feel like, as as much as I do love 3, that is where that started to come in, and then from there you kind of lost a lot of it. Like, he's such well, an asshole. And 3, the whole thing is, like, he, he's martyring himself, so it's kind of selfish, but he doesn't necessarily seem as evil, and it's easy for the audience to buy into that martyrdom. Yeah. And then 4, with this kind of weird structure, it, it's... It, buys more into that idea of him being like some sort of martyr and figured for change. Um, I don't know. I've, I've always been more on the side of jigsaw is just a bastard who's pretending he's not. Yeah. He's an angry asshole. And it doesn't help when you get into later entries where he's replaced by people who are even bigger assholes. So it's like, well, in comparison, he was a pretty okay serial killer. Yeah. They're presented as like, oh, they're twisting jigsaw's vision. So that just makes him in depth. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful vision. <laughs> <laughs> and it just doesn't quite doesn't quite work here. He's still just a giant dickwad who's kind of just evil and toying with people's lives. Like just the fact he has stuff from the house around him while talking to Detective Matthews. Yeah, just like tee look at my hints, including the, the safe. He really, it's right there. You know, he puts Matthews's son in danger. You know, he can't provide that kid is going to be safe even with Amanda in the room. Yeah, he's still That's dying. That's a pretty dick move, like... God knows Amanda does <laughs> not have a good time. Yeah, that's a child, like, I guess they, they brush that under the rug of, oh, she's being tested again because she relapsed a little. If anything, you think that makes Jigsaw, like, reconsider his plans where he's like, well, I made this person almost die and murder another person. That should cure him. Oh, it didn't? Well, let's do it again, but bigger. Well, that's one of the things I, I really loved about the, uh mockumentary that they made for the Saw 2 DVD <laughs> which is uh, the lead singer of the band that's on that kid's t-shirt because this is apparently a whole like inside joke thing with Bowsman and Linnell just creating their own fictional metal band in the Saw universe. <laughs> is it Wrath of God I think or something like that? Yes, Wrath of the Gods. Yes, Wrath of the fronted- Gods. Which is fronted by the kid who stabbed Adam with the rusty knife. <laughs> if you of continuity, I, if you've never watched it, it's kind of a forgotten piece of like Saul lore. Um, it's what's his name? Something Tibbs. Um, yes, yes. But it's like a fifteen-minute like documentary found footage thing that it all it reminds me so much of like youtube analog horror before that was like really a thing but in the saw universe it's very over the top like it seems to be in on the joke of it being ridiculous which doesn't quite work because you don't know why it's being so like ridiculously um cartoonish in like how much of a dick he is and all that but it actually kind of bridges the gap and takes place a little bit before after this and like plays with the idea of of people being inspired by jigsaw it's kind of interesting that in that regard yeah it's fast it's fascinating to me that that early on into the series people related to saw were already thinking 
ooh, we're going to be attracting these kind of people with these movies, aren't we? Let, let's nip this in the bud immediately. I do want to get back to that point because I have a little anecdote. But boy, we just missed a, a, another highlight of the film. The first death inside the trap house. All Which, in one shot, too. So great. All in one shot. He had the prosthetic on his face when he pressed his face up against the wall so he could just fall back with it on. It's it's wonderful. I love that kind of like <laughs> low-budget trick filmmaking because it, awesome. it works until like someone told me that that's how they did it. It never occurred to me that, yeah, duh, they just put the makeup on him ahead of time and he just turned his body to camera when it was time for him to reveal it. Also, some iconic fear acting from Shawnee Smith in this scene, which I remember being like one third of the trailer. Oh, yeah. The trailer was, yeah, that 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 eye kill, like toned down, obviously, for audiences. But that's a ballsy move just to give away like one of the big iconic kills of your movie in the trailer. I'm sure Bozeman didn't have a say in that at all. But uh, from what they said on the commentary tracks, it still played really well in all the theaters they were in and watched the movie. It is amazing looking back at the marketing. That is mostly Shawnee Smith screaming (laughs) because of how just goddamn uh, expressive her face is. Yeah. And the fact that she, they did such a good job of making one of the all time movie babes look like shit in this movie. (laughs) Like, not ugly. Like shit. Like I, I believe that Amanda has been through some stuff between movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, going. Speaking of the trailer, real quick, uh, that was another story. Which, like, God, I remember. There's. Are you going to talk about the poster? Well, I was just going to bring up the trailer fiasco. The first instance of the Curse of Bowsman. Oh, yeah. Where Lionsgate released the teaser trailer with uncolor corrected footage. So the everyone, the second, like, Saw 2 was revealed to the world, the first impression was, oh, it's going to look like shit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it ironically looked like a direct video movie. They were really excited when they saw the trailer. So they were like, well, we just have to put it out now. And no one asked, like, hey, did you color correct it and stuff beforehand before you showed us like this this teaser you cut together <laughs> no fir- who would need to check that not the last time Lionsgate will release something broken with da- Bowsman's name on it <laughs> I mean it worked out in the end but yeah for a first glimpse not exactly what you want as a teaser Lionsgate was a trash fire for about 15 years Still might kind of be. Kind of, yeah. a long, hard road to the Hellboy reboot. Ugh, boy. Oh, now I'm sad. Thanks, They have the Hunger Games. Wait, is that good? They uh, have that prequel coming. With I the would young say, Sutherland. like, half the Hunger Game movies were pretty entertaining. Also, does the entire idea of Escape Room come specifically from this movie? Oh, jeez. When did those really come popular? I don't know. Did they pre-exist this movie? It's actually a serious question on my part. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure escape rooms started becoming a thing after Saw Mania began. I need someone to make us an escape room documentary now, so we can get to the bottom of this case. Wow, I never thought about it, but there's a something beautifully cyclical about this movie feeling so cubic inspired. 
which leads to escape rooms being a thing, which leads to the escape room franchise, which is also inspired by Cube. <sighs> Time is a flat. Did circle. you guys ever check out? Did you guys ever see Escape Room Two: Tournament of Champions? No, I haven't no, watched I haven't that watched or either. the completely alternate director's cut. <laughs> That's what's fascinating about it because we have essentially two versions of the movie because they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do with it and neither one tested well. Uh, and it's, it's wild. Like how much the movie is different by the, like the, the pieces they've changed. Uh, I don't think either one is particularly good, which is a shame because I really, really enjoyed the first escape. I love the first one. Yeah. God, remember the five minutes that was going to be the next saw and we were just going to get one of those every year. Yeah. They screwed the pooch on that pretty quickly. Yeah, that was that's a bummer. Let's do something to talk about at a different time. But uh, yeah. folks, if you haven't seen the Escape Room movies, I would definitely recommend one, uh, wholeheartedly, full stop. Just check it out; it's a good time. Two, if you're morbidly curious, both versions of it, because that's part of the morbid curiosity. You got to check out both just to see like what the fuck is happening here. That's if you want to have a Daredevil di- theatrical cut versus Daredevil director's cut kind of conversation. Like, how much can you fuck up a movie? <laughs> you know what this house looks like? Any derelict house you come across in Fallout. Oh God, you're right. I was think always thinking Silent Hill whenever I watch this, but this is a super like Bethesda Fallout, uh, like randomly generated house where there's just <laughs> a skeleton with a Viking helmet in the bathtub for some reason. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love that detail of like Gus adjusting the painting so it's not crooked anymore. <laughs> I do love that. Just the one. He just fixes the one like, oh, this one's fucked up. And Shawnee's like, yeah. leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. It's it's crazy. This is a movie I didn't care for that much uh, when it initially came out. But I've kind of fallen in love with since doing the rewatch for this commentary series. And I gotta say, my number one thing is the set design in this movie. Not with between this house and... And Jigsaw's Lair. This is some of the best just horror movie set porn of the whole decade. Yeah. As for perception of the movie, I feel like when it came out, obviously it made a lot of money. But I do remember people being like, oh, it's not like the first Saw. They made it a little different. And, and there were people that were coming in for the first time on this movie. And they didn't like it at all. Um, but it, it's funny because with time, you can look back and go, oh, clearly this is... At the very least, the best of the sequels. I would say it's my favorite Saw. You know. It's the Scream it's, it's 2 just, of Saws. Yeah. Th- this is a masterpiece, in my opinion. This is fucking just excellent. Excellent piece there's of There's a lot of cinema. stuff like to get the crowd rolling on stuff. There's there's like enough subtext and good character work to make it not feel like it's something cheap or, I don't know, just like a cash-in sequel. Again, I'm still amazed by the fact they got this out one year within the original. That's that blows my mind. Uh, that's some King Kong, the son of King Kong shit. Exactly, like you would expect with that kind of rush. They're they're just like, okay, fuck it, let's just get this out. Who cares if it's good or not? And surprisingly, this really delivers for what genre fans were asking for. Uh, with the director who was fired two weeks earlier as a PA on Van Wilder, still my favorite story. Yeah, Bozeman's route to this movie is pretty unbelievable, right? By his own account, he he was like the last guy they should have hired to direct this film. Uh, he'd been fired from previous production roles. Uh, 
he basically had to lie, cheat, and steal to even get his script noticed. He put a, a pseudonym on it, and he talked to some of his friends to basically hype it up within the studios so that there would be genuine interest in it because nothing was happening. So once the interest started, he had to go and write the rest of the script. He had like 30 pages of the script written before he put it out there and got people to buy in on it. So he had to scramble to write this thing, the rough first version. And then he got pulled up by the Saw producers who knew they had a massive hit with their Saw movie. Originally, they were going to produce The Desperate as its own separate film before one of the producers said, no, 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 we need a Saw 2. Let's just make the Saw 2. So Bozeman, with like no experience, no standing, had to go stand in front of like the committee and be like, hey, hire me to make your your next big money-winning project. And somehow it happened. Somehow it worked. Blows my mind. Well, it's very important to point out that they asked him if he had horror experience, and he said, absolutely, I just directed a short film. And then they wanted to see it. So then he got on the phone with his mom and said, I need to borrow several thousand dollars so I can shoot a horror a horror short in a couple of days and then give it to these people so they'll make my movie. Which is what George did when he pitched the pilot to NBC on Seinfeld. And I nearly <laughs> fell out of my chair laughing at that. It's Isn't that fucking wild? And also, for the money thing, his dad basically sent him a letter... Uh, a year before Saw came out, Saw 2 came out and said, hey, we can't support you anymore. Like for years, they've been sending him money to try and get him set up in Hollywood. And it wasn't happening. His parents basically said, hey, we, we can't continue sending you money. You're, you're going to have to float on your own. And 11 months later, he had this movie out. <laughs> it's like if the main character from Butterfly Kisses did something with his life. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I love about Bowsman is you. when you listen to his stories, there is no genre director who has had to hustle more. Uh, like he, he, and he is so honest about how often he has had to lie in his career. <laughs> I mean, I guess no one cares as long as you're successful in the end. Like He made you or Lionsgate a bunch of money, so they're not going to go back and be like, hey, come on, you cheated us. It's it's something that would uh, – you can't believe it happened once, and it will definitely never happen again, which is, hey, this movie made a bunch of money. We're going to quickly make a sequel to it. Let's have just some dude make it. And yeah, that was just because of his lawyer putting in like a, craw a clause in the contract for the desperate that he had to direct it, right? Like in any iteration of it. Yeah, I don't like think that. I think they desperately did not want him directing the movie. I'm sure they didn't. They were the desperate. Oh, ho, 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 I'll be here all concert. Uh -huh. uh, and, and Juan was busy one other up twist this here. Yeah, that was that was the other thing. Like uh, traditionally, you just get the original guys back, or most movie franchises, they just wait a year or two and be like, okay, it doesn't have to be every year. But the producers for Saw were smart enough to go, we have to ride this while it's hot. We cannot let the audience forget about Saw. It's popular now. If we can get one of these out every October, we're going to make bank. And they were 100% correct. It was probably the best marketing move, business move they could have made with the franchise. Oh, yeah. If it's October, it must be Saul. They came up with that immediately, and that was fucking gangbusters. Yeah. Well, just think of the difficulty they've had pushing out sequels ever since Saw 3D. You know, Spiral from the Book of Saw or Saw 10 took years to gestate and, and come out, or even Jigsaw took forever to come out. 
And it feels like it's been too much second guessing or sitting around and like, well, what should we do now? Uh, is that good enough? And then the longer the time goes, the more the pressure is there for this to be something big and stand out to justify that weight. Yeah. Whereas if you have one coming out every single year, I think you don't have the time to second guess yourself. You just got to run. Not everything you do is going to be great, but you're going to get a movie out the door and you're going to be flying on instincts that got you there in the first place. So you should trust them. Well, Saw's in that weird, it's occupying that weird state currently that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of occupies, where it's never actually gone away as a franchise, it just hasn't been relevant in so long, and the attempts to bring it back have never really, like, hit with anybody. So it feels like it's been 15 years since there was a Saw movie. Yeah, it always feels like it's been way longer than it has. But, God, looking back at the box office for some of the films, it fucking blows my mind that this movie made $140 million. Like, that's phenomenal. And then you get to the latest entry, like, Spiral made $40 million. Like, how that doesn't even seem possible, right? That it could make only $40 million. Where to think a movie starring Chris Rock only made $40 million. And I mean, granted, that was like kind of a COVID fallout movie, so that hurt it quite a bit. Yeah. It's still insane to me to have that kind of drop off. I guess it's it's not uncommon. I mean, you saw it for Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, all those movies eventually had the receipts dwindle as time goes on. But it's just still very surprising to have that kind of box office drought, even on the returns. And they keep thinking, this is a viable franchise. We can make it happen again. Who knows? Now that they have Tobin uh, Bell coming back, maybe this one will actually kick. And it will forever amuse me that after two other attempts to bring back Saw, they're just going, okay, let's just do another prequel. <laughs> we'll get the fans what they want. Just had Jake, oh, Jake Saw do Sorry, I just shit. had some alert. Stop it. I gotta finish the drink. I've started it. There's an antidote at the bottom of the glass. I gotta finish it before I'm <laughs> killed by nerve I have agent. to drink the. Po- I have to drink more and more of the poison until I get the antidote of the poison. <laughs> Damn you, drink saw. That's a saw trap. That is a saw trap, Jamie. That's how it works. <laughs> how much will you die to keep away from die? <laughs> yes. Die or die. It's your choice. That, that's what the Saw franchise should have became, just Jigsaw so lowly losing it to chemo brain. <laughs> you just walk into a room with a knife on a floor, on the floor and with a, a sign that says, kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> There's one gun there, like, okay, well, this is this is pretty straightforward. Dun, kill dun, yourself dun, dun, or dun, not. Dun, dun. <laughs> I don't give a shit. One of the aspects of this movie that I found interesting, too, is there's all these traps, and they're all designed for a specific person. Like this one, they walk in, there's the note. You know, it's it's attached to his backstory a little bit. But later on, as the characters kind of spiral out of control, they just go into traps, and they don't even give a shit who it's for. <laughs> Which is fascinating, because, like, Jigsaw meticulously planned this whole thing out. And, in, like, in the real world, people immediately go, eh, we don't have to do it his way. Like, he's not in here telling us we have to do it, like, the rules say. Which is actually part of the which is actually part of the trap with um the slit wrist the hand thing yeah because yeah. if because the 
point of it is on the back of it is a key and a lock. And if you just didn't immediately go for it and actually took your time, <laughs> you would have just noticed that you could just open it. Which again, this plays into Jigsaw's uh, Jigsaw's MO being punishment, not redemption. Exactly. It's, it's a lot of dickishness. Like in this one, apparently the trick is, according to the commentary again, if you can crawl through the flames, there's a gas shutoff valve inside of there, and all you'd have to do is flip that valve and it would stop the flames. But as soon as you start screaming, your lungs collapse and you die. So if, if you could just hold your breath and crawl through the flames and take that little bit of pain, you'd be out of the trap fairly easily. As a kid watching this movie, like, for the first time, I just thought, like, oh, that one's impossible to get out of. They just put them in an oven. Like, <laughs> this, this thing freaks me Jigsaw, out. Jigsaw yeah. forgot to put something in there. Jigsaw, yeah, like, there should be a way out of this one. This one feels like it's fucked up. I guess that'd become a thing later on with Saw movies, right? Like, impossible traps! Oh, there it is. Yeah, there's the, the valve. All you had to do is make it over there. Yeah. Which I, is one of the things I really appreciate th about this movie there is so much microscopic detail and environmental storytelling put into this stuff. Like the fact that I didn't even notice until Balsman mentions it in the commentary that there are weapons stashed in the house that the audience can see if they're paying attention that the characters never acknowledge or pick up. <laughs> Cause that, that's just a world they built. It goes I mean, a long this, way this whenever you're set designing. Uh, I just want to. Oh, it goes a long way whenever you're set designing to include things that really only the audience sees and maybe characters don't interact with, but are important to that environment if it existed. The fact well, that so all the sketches and the fact that all the sketches in Jigsaw's lair are from the first two movies and the unmade Saw three blows my mind. Like. My God, that's that's so much like slavish nerd continuity detail on your second entry. So I would say one one thing that I feel like goofed up a little bit here, and this is why I was thrown off for so long. They do got job showing the gas valve. They has to twist it. They have the moment where this guy's in the back of the oven and he's clearly trying to hold his mouth shut so he doesn't scream. And they've explained the deal is the heat is what's killing him. Like, it's destroying his lungs so he can't breathe. But then they include this little bit here where they break the glass and he pops out and screams for a little while while grasping him before he dies. And they show the flames licking his legs. Which, to, to a lot of audience members, will just, they'll make the assumption, oh, it's the heat that's killing this guy. <laughs> and it reinforces the well, whole idea. Well, I mean, at that point, he's burning a lot. It would have just been like, yeah. The lung thing actually came from the actor doing research for it, and that's why he grabs his mouth is he had learned yeah. that that's what happens it wasn't like something that was like in the script or anything like that um so that's why he's but i mean the afterwards like the shot choice and the editing they like go with his idea until they get to the end where he busts out and it's like oh it kind of that was a really cool idea and they they, they kind of toss it away in my mind by just like oh no he burns to death that's that's what would have happened Jigsaw's straw. <laughs> I, was, uh, I always forget how off, how much of this movie is composed of Dina Meyer uh, just staring intently. <laughs> Still say one of the biggest, second biggest mistake was killing Dina Meyer at the beginning of a movie. Yeah. 
That character that seems to only be in these two movies to set up something for the third movie. The handoff, yeah. Instead, it a, becomes a psycho thing, but we'll get there. Every look Tobin Bell gives is fucking gold. <laughs> okay, so this gets back to a point we made right at the beginning of the thing. I think we've got a little bit of dead time. We can discuss this. Where where are we putting Saw in the pantheon of horror films? Because uh, I think we all agreed torture porn seems like a misnomer for it. It was just kind of the label that was slapped on this thing because there was a trend of more violent films at the time. I don't know if you could really call him a slasher. Like, he finds inventive ways for people to die, but he's Slashers are active. not really the one. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. He's not particularly doing it. He's he's kind of plotting it. He's masterminding it. Hey, he's a mastermind character. Well, not a to slasher. Me. I would definitely say he's a step above just a villain or a serial killer. Like, he is in, like, the a horror icon, icon pantheon. Kind of the way that Valak isn't a slasher, but is also still still kind of seems in league with, like, a Freddy or a Jason. Yeah, he's still, uh, he's still like, a horror monster character. Like, he's still up there. He's, uh, he he's, he's, the on, he's on a too. Mount Rushmore. To me, Saul fits more in with um, something like Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, uh, Texas Chainsaw, things like that. Texas Chainsaw is another kind of edge case. Uh, Very so edge because Leatherface is technically a slasher. But there's also more of like a, a family terrorizing thing to to Texas Chainsaw other than like Leatherface isn't going out there and stalking people one by one kind of thing. Leatherface himself almost feels like a last minute afterthought to, to just a regular like cannibalism movie. I would say the, the big difference for me between a, a Jigsaw and a Leatherface type is Jigsaw is actively seeking out the people he puts in the traps, right? Like he meticulously finds people with backstory that he can exploit and be like, oh, there's a reason to kill him. Texas Chainsaw Massacres, typically, not always because there's been a couple where they go on the road and murder their way through America. Typically, Leatherface is minding his own business and people come to him. They're all yeah. home invasion. Lion's Den. Yeah. yeah, the the description I saw once, and I wish I could remember who said it, it was a brilliant Twitter thread on this thing, is that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is kind of the idea that uh, what if you flipped a rock over and yes. what was underneath was terrifying. It was just like a yes. nest of spiders or something. Like, those things are hidden all over the place, but if as long as you don't interact with your environment, you would never know. I think that was the same Twitter thread where they brought up the idea of what if instead of sequels, that was just an anthology series, and then we got a, a blank massacre for every state, and that was the theme? It's like, oh my god, I can still we live love in that, that universe? So much. Yeah. It's such an amazing concept, because the, the it works. It's such a great idea. If you go to this, every state has that area, right? Like, oh, we don't stop in Adams County. Like, if you linger too long, you pay a little too much attention to these people that are mostly minding their own business, you are in danger as an outsider. Anyways, so Saw doesn't have that. Saw, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I I think that's just barbarian. Um, (laughs) But for Saw, it's it's obviously not that. I mean, Jigsaw is very intentionally picking his victims, so it feels like it operates in a different mode. The funny thing to me, though, is the area I do see both those movies being very similar in is they feel 
supernatural when they obviously are not. Like nothing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is really supposed to be like this is something that couldn't happen in this world. They're not vampires, it's a very heightened reality. Not zombies. Yeah, it's it's not the real real world, but the the setup is these people are so twisted that you can't recognize their world from yours, but it could still happen. That's what fascinates me about. Essentially, what I think is going on in the Saw films, right? It's, yeah, it's still like it's such a grim, gritty, nasty, slimy world. But just imagine if you were like in the worst part of Detroit and there was a guy with a vendetta because he was dying and he had a lot of engineering experience. Not saying he would make this. This takes probably a superhuman amount of effort to make happen, but something akin to it, like torturing other people by putting them in weird philosophical traps is within the realm of possibility. Considering the toolbox killer happened, like it's not that far of an escalation. Pretty much. And that's what interests me about Juan's original idea about it being like, in kind of a fantasy reality that I do think he eventually achieved with Malignant um, is that the, the way the style grew because Juan didn't immediately direct the sequel and things were kind of extrapolated and then they kind of made bigger that we got a, a fantasy world sort of uh, of this very like heightened reality that is very like gritty uh, much like Texas Chainsaw which is very down to earth and how it feels it feels grimy and real but it is also this hyper world that you can go from texas chainsaw massacre to texas chainsaw massacre 2 with it's very much like the basically the hannibal lecter universe where everything's just turned (laughs) up just a little bit in how crimes are committed that's one of the reasons like spiral seemed like a good idea at the time like no in this universe i could totally see there just being super villain serial killers that pop up after jigsaw and that can just be a franchise by itself yeah i think of it like hannibal where (laughs) hannibal has that one episode where there is uh, a serial killer he gets into a beef with a guy who like (laughs) uh, murders people in the orchestra because they play bad and like (laughs) they get into a fight in hannibal's office where he's just like whipping him with violin chords or Mike and I's favorite episode, the one where Will fights a Spider-Man villain who wears a tiger suit. <laughs> yeah, the saber-toothed tiger killer. Yeah, that was uh, one of my one of my favorite episodes of television. <laughs> that is something you can only pull off with absolute competence. My hat is off to that show. Right, and get on network television, and be like, "Here's our gory, weird ass show." And they're like, "Fuck it, cool, man. Go ahead." God, I love Hannibal so much. But yeah, that that was that was my thinking on Spiral or any of the spin-off Saw movies. We we had the idea of apprentices in these films, and John is supposed to be an inspirational character in this world. You would just assume one of those movies would explore that and be like, this guy is totally divorced from Jigsaw and is doing his own thing because he proved in this world that's a, that's a way to make your money. Yeah, and but let's be honest, the best thing about the idea of doing those movies was films with the subtitle from the book of saw. I think the Wikipedia article might've dropped the subtitle. I don't know if that's still the official, official title Lionsgate is running with. They, 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 they got to pick that little... subtitle up again. Eventually. I, I just find it very funny whenever a movie comes out and they're like the book of whatever. It works in a literary sense when it's a literal book, but whenever it becomes a movie, I'm always like, why are we doing this? The Book of Boba Fett? No, stop it. I I will forever love that the Book of Boba Fett is basically called that. 
because it would that would be the coolest possible thing to pop up during that final scene. <laughs> I was done entirely for the effect. I'm a sucker for those kind of titles. I <laughs> Not the sacred one. texts. I, I, they drive me nuts. They seem like too pretentious or weird for me to go. Just like fucking call it the next chapter or something generic. I'm fine with that. I don't know. It's, it's a weird pet peeve. I'll admit that much, but <laughs> it just seems very silly. It's still better than Pirates of the Caribbean bringing up the fucking Curse of the Black Pearl in its first movie. <laughs> My favorite unnecessary <laughs> subtitle like, this is This is just Pirates of the Caribbean. Forget that it's called anything else. We only need this for, like, the eight sequels they have rolling. Genius last-minute thinking, though. <laughs> so, God, the, the coloring in this room just makes me feel ill. We talked just a little bit, uh, the last commentary, about how this was still at a time when, like, film, the yellow and green and blue film grading that movies of this era were known for was still kind of being used for a purpose. And something Bellsman yeah. said in one of the commentaries that blew my mind was, like, the all of the color coding in this movie is 100% intentional, and specifically the color green is always invoked for Jigsaw's manipulation, which tracks. Is this scene green or yellow? I thought it was yellow. It's yellow. This scene's yellow. Okay. Okay. Uh, but Amanda's I wearing green. Here, I, wait, uh-huh. Uh, I see what they did there. A uh, couple things I want to point out about the needle pit scene. One, obviously, this is like the big trap in my mind for this movie. This got me so much when it first came out and I saw it like in trailers and stuff. It freaked me out. Two, I like in the jigsaw opening tape, he's like, you have to crawl through this pit of squalor that you force your customers into. Immediately takes one of his customers and throws it right into the squalor. <laughs> like, he didn't learn a thing. Jigsaw just gave him four bad ideas. Uh, another point. The cast and crew, like some of the actors and actresses, were putting these needles together. Because obviously they couldn't have someone jump into a pit of real needles. So they had to take needles and basically take the plungers out, or the, the needles out of them. And they, it took them days. Place with like, the fiber optic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last point, and this blew my mind because I didn't even realize until just very recently. She only has a handful of real needles applied to her, like glued onto her skin. There's a bunch that are just CGI. Like, I never realized how many of these needles were not practical effects. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't seamless. thinking about it. Yeah, because it's still like 2005. So I wasn't looking for CGI unless it's really obvious and clunky. Yeah, so it's kind of that, that's uh, really well done cool. effects when they blend in perfectly. Yeah, it's kind of cool they used it for such a, like a subtle thing. Um, also, fun behind the scenes story: right before filming this scene, they accidentally dropped real needles in there, and then had to stop filming <laughs> to fish them all out because they had to use real ones. Oh, for what's a doodle? God, uh, a needle in a needle stack. That's and Winnell said that when he wrote the scene. In his mind, this was going to be like a ball pit where she was like up to like her neck in it. And then it's like practically uh, they they all weigh a lot and they're all needles. solid objects. So you just land on top of it. Yeah. Oh, I thought she was going to Scrooge McDuck into that thing. He was so excited. Also, God, unbeknownst just... to everybody on set at the time, uh, Shawnee Smith, four months pregnant doing <laughs> <laughs> 
Which Bowsman discovered going out to dinner with Smith and her family. And Shawnee Smith's daughter, who was like five at the time, leaned over and whispered in his ear, Do you want to know a secret? There's a baby in mommy's tummy. And Bowsman leaned over and said, Do not tell anyone else that or very bad things will happen. That was the same day they filmed this scene. They had filmed like, it oh, earlier we are that day. Be in so much trouble if that gets out. <laughs> we threw oh the pregnant woman God. in the spike pit. Oh no! God, this trap though—it still gives me kind of the heat. Oh, uh, it's so fucking gnarly. Which and there's other traps that are way more extreme, right? Like, oh, this one—it'll just crush your head in a vice if you don't cut your eyeball open. That's that's obviously way more extreme. This one's like, boy, I got poked a whole lot and I didn't like it. Oh, this is a pure splatterpunk novel right here. Yes. I'd say this and, ironically, the other Amanda Trap, the the bear trap from the first movie, are easily the two, like, bright spots in uh, the the trap design in in these movies. Like, there is something so simple and viscerally disturbing about this. And it never gets any better. It still skews me out every time. Right? Yeah. That's the thing. Some of the other Saw movies, the traps become... You are now suspended over a field of running lawnmowers. And it's it's like, that seems a it little just, complicated. It just seems, yeah, th- this highlights why the traps in later movies just are kind of stupid. To a certain I forget point. Which, what, which of the later sequels it is, but the one with the, uh, the tug of war. With the two dudes like oh, pulling yeah. on the chain. It's like, God. That, that, was, that was one of the moments where I was like, uh, okay, this is just, this is literally, this is an Arkham game right now. This is just a Riddler <laughs> trap. Yeah. Also, we passed it by Love Xavier's uh, look of regret, which was uh, Bowsman calling out and wanting him to do uh, the Kruger bit from Last House on the Left. <sighs> which, God, I found out uh, just listening to an interview with Bowsman today. Like, that was one of the instrumental movies that broke his early brain because he watched it at like eight and that that reaction <laughs> shot was what taught him moral ambiguity as a concept and that's why Wes Wesson is his hero Last House on the Left is one that kind of gets overlooked right because that movie yeah. came out and caused like a moral panic people who saw that movie in the theaters is one of those deals where they in some cases stormed the theater booth to try and destroy the print because they thought like this film's fucked it's believed it, Craven's wife left him over that movie because she was Christian and so overnight she was the wife of the dude who made Last House on the Left. It's funny it was that and not like him directing movies as like Abe's Snake Man. <laughs> <laughs> you think all the porn stuff would have been enough, but whatever. Uh, man, but Last House on the Left, it's amazing because it's such a weird, funky movie. It's clearly a movie made by someone who has not had a lot of practice filmmaking, but has talent. It's It's disturbing. But there's also weird semi-comedy bits that go on way too long. It's it's such a weird, bumpy ride of a film. But I love it for that. And, yeah, I don't think you can even argue with the power of the, the like, rape scene to this day. You know, them just telling her the, the poor one to, like, piss her pants and all that stuff. It's fucked. Still, for a movie that came out that long ago. Yeah. To a different degree than we have the remake, which is kind of wild, right? That uh, someone at some point said, no, we still have money to pull out of this. Let's make a Last House on Left remake. 
So strange. It's good. I love. I love the remake. It's, it's but, good. Yeah. yeah. It's very it's different. Like, it plays up a lot of the same it's things. Not the same. But it's still very different. Yeah. That's one of those deals where it it kind of makes sense to do a remake because they don't do it the same way as the original, but they can put some new age sheen on it compared to, you know, Craven's zero dollar first time nineteen seventies filmmaking experiment. Head in the microwave too is just still greatest thing. Oh ever. god, what a what a fantastic end. I don't know why we spent so much time talking about The Last House on the Left. Because it's so good. Uh, that would be a- It's worth checking out for people that haven't seen it. it, it not a commentary, because I don't know if we can do commentary for that, oh, but God. we should do an episode on it. Probably at some not. Point. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, Bowsman and Linnell both seem to be surprised people take the twist of Amanda being the mastermind. And find it more like the twist is the fact that the real game is just the conversation between Jigsaw and Detective Matthews. <laughs> it's it's really simple misdirection because Jigsaw is telling him very clearly what the terms of the game are. Audiences should pick up because he's even saying shit very directly at the camera like, your son is in a safe place <laughs> and there's like a safe in the goddamn room. On, on a rewatch, you're like, how did I not pick up the twist in the first two seconds? I'm sure a lot of people did. But it's it's one of those. Okay, he's kind of playing fair, at least here. He's, he's like being as open as he can without giving the game away by directly telling him, like, just sit here for an hour and a half. Your son's in that safe. It's hilarious yeah. hearing Donnie Wahlberg make fun of his own character in the cast commentary. This is the worst <laughs> detective ever. I'm literally surrounded by evidence, and I'm not looking at any of it. You know, it's easy to make fun of any Wahlberg, of course, but it should be said that um, a lot of character stuff actually came from Donnie Wahlberg, kind of like, much like um, Carrie Elway's in the first movie, like writing a, uh, writing a lot of dialogue and, and bits and bobs or coming up with things that do, like, legitimately improve the movie. It's funny, these days I just mostly associate uh, Donnie Wahlberg with being attached to the cultural shame that is Blue Bloods, but... It's funny, like looking at stuff like that and going, "Oh yeah, Donnie Wahlberg is actually really good." Yeah, well, Donnie Wahlberg is an actor's actor who cares about the craft deeply, who had a very, mountain of script notes, very invested in the character. Although it, it's weird listening to the commentary because I can't tell necessarily when Donnie is joking about things or when he's just kind of letting himself appear as an asshole. There, there's is, moments in that commentary where he's saying like, oh, I wouldn't go out like a bitch like that. So I fought in the script to be like, no, no, no. I have to let like, like a cool, tough guy scream like, but your character is supposed to be an asshole. Like, shouldn't he have like a little bitch of a scream? Donnie Wahlberg advertising this and a dead silence on talk shows was fascinating because he'd always be kind of low key making fun of the movies, but not really. I remember him specifically saying, look. Saw too. It's not Shakespeare or anything, but it's it's a fun movie to take your girlfriend to. Yeah, he was very adamant. Oh, it's good. It's good for a horror movie. I'm like, you can just stop there. It, you don't even have to say like it's genre, so it's okay. Donnie, many actors, especially back like then. Dude. Yeah, uh, a lot of actors, especially back then, always felt like they had to quantify whenever they were in a horror yeah. movie. Yeah. Well, plus, maybe I'm just in a bad spot for the commentary because it's just like, dear God, every every scene, they're basically like, isn't she hot right here? Isn't that person oh, hot? There's oh, so God, much of it. It's true every time, it though. so 2008. It's just, 
the commentaries are just dripping with that misogyny where they're just like, oh, fuck. Oh, God damn. She's beautiful. Fuck. Oh, God damn it. That's it's like half of what they're saying. <laughs> it feels I, I a do, little skeezy. I do Ooh, fully believe that when bat. they say the reason that uh, slit wrist girl is in the movie so much is because the, the editor had a crush on her. Yeah. Because when you're looking for it, there are lots of insert shots of her. To the point where she feels like a big part of the movie. Yeah, when she's just kind of hanging around silently for a lot of it. (laughs) The shot here of just taking the bat out. (laughs) It's bad enough to clock a guy with a nail bat, but then kind of the the holding there and wobbling around his skull for a second considers the clues. I love those little inserts, like the, the extra weight they really give to the violence. Which I, I think that's the scene that they had to steal, because like a big, a big thing with this production was Lionsgate had zero confidence that Bowsman was going to turn it in on time for them to get that release date. So they kept kicking him off sets before he was satisfied with coverage. So when he realized they hadn't shot. Uh, the bat being pulled out of the skull. They had the crew distract one of the producers, and then Bowsman and the and the cast and crew were then walled into a four wall set that no one could get in and out of, <laughs> and just were trapped in there and filmed it. And the, like they jigsawed themselves to get a shot. And to be fair, the to first the of many times Bowsman a... would get things over on the producers. Yeah, and and to be fair to the producers, though, this was such a tight budget of a movie. Like, yeah, I understand why you got to be so frugal and got to say, "Hey, down you to the scent." They they filmed this thing over what was it twenty some days, more than they had in the first movie, but it's still not an exceedingly long amount of time. They were going pretty fast. Uh, going back to the idea of picking up insert shots. Uh, the cinematographer Armstrong, he saved one himself because they had to move on from a set uh, in that opening trap before they got the shot of the eye, which is very short, right? But it's such a good shot of like the scalpel closing in on the eye. Uh, So the cinematographer, just when he had some downtime a day or so later, just basically pulled someone back into that room and filmed that scene quick or that that shot quick just so they could put it in because he knew they were going to need it later. So (laughs) luckily everyone was on their A-game pulling stuff together as fast as they could and, and saving little bits when they could. Except for that one cameraman who I believe like nearly gave one of the actors a concussion by just beating them in the head with heavy camera equipment. <laughs> Whoops. That's part of the method. So, yeah, Xavier really brings up something that is kind of a double-edged sword with this movie, which is it does everything you could possibly want from a Saw sequel. But unfortunately, it has done everything you could possibly want from a Saw <laughs> sequel. So you kind of get, ev- like, that's what makes the movie special. It's everything at once. But because of that, we kind of just get repetitions on a theme from here on out. Like, Xavier yeah. answers the question, what if instead of, you know, uh, it being a moral quandary, like it was in the first movie. There's, there's just a sociopath in a saw trap who just want 
who is perfectly fine with hurting <laughs> other people and himself to get what he wants. And that leads to that guy being in every Saw movie. We have oh, it's that, too bad, because in the first one, we had the moment where it's two guys who are skeezy, but they deep down aren't so bad. This yeah. one is, deep down, this guy's just such a piece of shit. So it kind of gives you foils. You, you have the two extreme ends of the spectrum. But to your point, yeah, in all the sequels, they just go with more of this kind of guy, it feels like. And the twin plot twists, which end up becoming the only plot twists that Saw has. There's a secret apprentice... And some shit you were seeing earlier in the movie is actually a flashback. Yeah. It, it those are the only to... two twists you have room for with this premise. Yeah. It, it works to various degrees. I would say the idea of four, where it's this whole thing was a flash sideways kind of deal yeah. to the previous movie, that worked. But you can do that once. Yeah. Like, literally once, and they pulled it out the right time, because, like, fuck, how do we keep Jigsaw in this thing? But it does it does have diminishing returns as you go along. But you could probably say that about even Friday the 13th. Like, what is that premise? Jason Voorhees kills people at a camp around a lake. Yeah. How much can you do with but that? I, I think the big problem is whenever you're dealing with a twist, you see this from like M. Night Shyamalan, is whenever the audience is then expecting there to be a twist, it doesn't matter what you do. It just makes the film lifeless because you know a twist is coming regardless, even though you're looking out for things because you're trying to guess the twist, which is fun. Yeah. Not saying it's not fun, but it becomes a slog where you're just waiting for the twist to be revealed. Oh, wait, wait, wait. This. Oh. <clears throat> ah! So that was a dummy hand that actually had, they said, wooden bones so they could actually yes. break it on set for a more realistic so cool. action. Plus the, the little bit of Foley there with the snap. Ooh, and the reaction, too, from Tobin sells that so well. Like, in a movie filled with people jumping in needle pits, that's still a standout moment of violence. It's just a broken finger. And it's so effective in making you not like the, ostensibly, the protagonist of the movie beating up the evil horror movie monster. Because that's a cop beating up a dude with cancer. Yeah. <laughs> This is another trap. As a kid, I'm like, come on, how are you supposed to get out of this? Like, was someone else supposed to sit there and, like, help you push the razor blades up? And technically, yeah. But yeah, you can actually just see the key right there. I love it. And again, just in the first sequel, we immediately answer the question, so what if somebody just didn't play the tape at all? (laughs) Yeah, going back, Jamie, to what you were saying about how this feels like it's kind of run the course on Saw. It feels like we're moving towards a trilogy, right? Because John Kramer is clearly on his deathbed by the start of this movie, and then he gets the shit kicked out of him. We've explored the idea of, okay, a bunch of people in a house. This is the bigger version of the first movie's idea of two people in a trap. We've seen naturally good people in a trap. We've seen really awful people in a trap. How much is left? And it feels like the third movie would give you that answer. We have to have one last test that determines if John is going to live or die. And the morality there is is kind of indicative of the Saw franchise's entire opinion on humanity. Yeah. But then they're too successful, so they kept going. <laughs> they also made, actually I, is a bummer because they kind of they killed Amanda. After that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that I, well, I that... love three. Three is a great movie, but that's where everything went wrong. 
Now, Bowsman is very honest about the fact that the moment Saw 3 went into production, that's when the Saw machine started. Yeah. And pretty soon, Winnell wasn't in the room to like, be part of the creative process outside of just de- designing some traps. And new writers came in, and a- as Bowsman put it, every new person added to the project wanted to put their thumbprint on Saw. Exactly. Yeah. It became very producer driven uh as well with and the main like stalwart producer of it uh, unfortunately died, Greg Hoffman. So yeah. well, he was he passed away was it between after two three? and three. Between two yeah. and three, okay. Plane crash. Yeah, there there's a nice tribute to him on the special features for the Saw One 4K that just came out. There's like an hour long Oh, nice. Uh, saw retrospective, uh, and they have one segment in there where they just kind of, you know, talk about Greg Hoffman and how important he was to the franchise and what, you know, apparently he was a pre stand up guy. Of course, in, in a memorial segment, you're not going to say anything bad, but they, they make him out to be like a pretty decent good friend. Apparently, he made Bowsman uh, get a haircut because he told him that his ridiculously long, shaggy, hippie hair would offend the crew. <laughs> And ba- which well, Bowsman says was correct and the right decision, which makes yeah. me wonder, what did his hair look like? I, I, look, we all know what Bowsman looks like. I cannot see that dude rocking long hair and it looking good. Sorry, Darren. We've got Photoshop. We could, we could make this happen. We could, we could experiment. Uh, I want to point out to everyone at home, you should be proud of me. I have finished my own saw trap. I have finished drinking my Malort cocktail. It was got off the last drop. Um, and I moved on to a Miller High Life, and this is the most delicious Miller High Life I've ever had in my life. It's it's room warm. I'm drinking in the dark, and it's, it's so good. I, I feel like I understand the movie a little better now. I've come out the other end of this trap, and I do appreciate life a little more. Um, also, I think the uh, very underrated twist, they're in an elevator. I know. Oh, and here we have the classic saw. The, tar- the car is not moving. Car chase. I love it's like ultra poor man process on these vehicles. Like just just rock the camera a little bit and have the people kind of move their shoulders like they're. In I think Star that Trek was the thing generation. where 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 Bowsman was talking about like oh yeah because I thought that was like a really cool style and stuff and of course you know you can do it for no money and Juan was like yeah but we did it because we didn't have any money like you're not you shouldn't imitate <laughs> that. We wanted to film an actual goddamn car. Yeah, Why that, that, that wasn't us song. creating a style. Uh. <laughs> that speed ramp though. <laughs> Speed ramp turning right. the corner is is very funny. It's very night um, bus. <laughs> I wish no one had taught me about speed ramping, so I could remain blissfully ignorant about that. I would have thought Speed was a much better movie. I thought they were actually driving that bus at fifty five miles per hour. No movie magic. Keanu's just driving that thing. Uh, like don't a pull! Don't pull it out! Don't pull it out! Oh, it's <laughs> oh, the head pull! It's wonderful. God, I love the attention to detail and that kind of stuff. Oh, we need a little extra movement here. Gah! Got the leverage. It's kind of amazing <laughs> what kind of sprint towards the uh, ending this movie takes. It really speeds up. up. It becomes a different, yeah, different thing at the end. Uh, also, to point out a, a bit of character work that I love Shawnee is doing is every time she's in a scene, she's just foraging for things. She's just picking shit up yes. to defend herself every scene. <laughs> it's like a video game character just raiding every uh, every inventory <laughs> stack. <laughs> Well, she has that tough juggling act, too, right? Because she has to, in the end, convince us, like, she's the evil mastermind who knew what she was doing, 
But in the moment, we have to think she's swept up in this and she's just doing her best to survive. Yeah. The only moment that I think kind of slightly cheats is when she notices the the trap door. Like it feels like that, that's weird that she would just be like surprised to see that and stuff. That's not a place I, I feel like the movie kind yeah. of cheats, but you're allowed to. You're I, allowed I mean, they cheats. cheat a little bit, but the twist wouldn't work if they're she was acting honestly, like even when it's just the camera on her and not other people. Yeah, so I, I, I just go with it. She's method acting. She's acting for the room. And that's <laughs> that's why. Just, you know, have but, Daniel notice it instead, you know, just from a script writing standpoint. But eh, I'm sure it probably made sense at the time. Yeah. Oh, God. They're, they're going they were, so fast, you're like, fuck it, just do it like this. Oh, they were constantly trying to cover up plot holes in ADR, which is why they, apparently in all of these movies, the very last thing recorded is the Jigsaw tapes. Because they need to, they need like to look at the finalized footage and figure out the questions the audience would have. Yeah, and that's uh, nice too because it's a puppet. The puppet could say anything, so why yeah, not exactly. use that the last and just stick it? Apparently, like fucking, nearly every tape in this movie, they re-recorded. Like, oh yeah, they're listening to something completely different whenever they're they're actually <laughs> uh, filming you, what's in the script. And once you know that, you can't unhear how many times Jigsaw is always saying. Oh, and one more thing. Don't try to do that thing you just thought of. That won't work. I like to think the um, fake tape that is uh, recorded for on-set purposes isn't Tobin Bell, though. It's the dude who does the voice in the motion comic, who I've always been obsessed with. Just with the completely different performance, who is like a sleazy New Yorker. Hey! It's jigsaw in time. I'm uh, cherishing my life over here. <laughs> I, I would like to say, uh, we passed this a minute ago, but we had a moment where Xavier's running down the steps, Donnie Wahlberg's busting in, and it's cut together to make you think these are happening at the same time, right? We, we haven't been revealed to the twist quite yet that all this is in the past. Everyone in this house is already dead. Uh, that's a trick that's been done by many other movies now. So it's not as effective. I find myself watching all the time for that to be like, oh, these happened at different times. They're trying yeah. to trick us with the time. Now the line. movie seems to telegraph it, it to let you know that they're about to do clever editing, which is always kind of weird. When when this is still in like the Silence of the Lambs house of, you know, Clarice like ringing the doorbell and stuff. Yeah. So obviously this isn't the first movie to do it, but I think this is one of the last times where you could get away with it and people wouldn't be watching and waiting for it and this is a yeah this is a really big version of it and it's it's done in a way where it doesn't want you to notice until it wants you to notice also real quick mike i i, I was disappointed that nobody in any of the commentaries or anything i could find really brought this up or talked about it but doesn't it feel like there's some kind of vague Greek mythology thing happening with this finale, with them running down a labyrinth, labyrinth. with this half-blind yeah. mo- mo- minotaur coming after them? <laughs> oh, Very much no. so, yeah. The there's bathroom. a lot of... Uh, uh, recreated perfectly, horrible. too, which is impressive. Um, yeah, there's honestly yeah. a lot of larger mythology stuff, mostly accidental with the Saw series, because uh, I think it it just ends up playing with similar tropes. And it is funny that this 
the ba- the basement that the bathroom is housed in, which we keep returning to throughout the entire series, is the labyrinth of Saw. And I don't think it's ever like intentionally put that way, but yeah, it is very Minotaur like. The pig's the Minotaur. <laughs> you know, the pig's only in this movie because of Donnie Wahlberg, which I love. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> smart call by Donnie. Another bit of iconography that really you expect the pigs when it comes to Saw, and we only got it because Donnie's like, it's fucking stupid. We don't have the pig in here. Where's the pig? I think it's the bane of James Wan's existence. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do like that. Yeah, so Donnie insisted the pig is in there because he said it was the best scare from the first movie. I do appreciate that when a guy is a fan of the first film, gets yeah. hired to be on the second one, and he's like, God damn it, I want more of the stuff I liked from that first experience. Oh, it's like when you find out that Tommy Lee Jones requested having Kay's lines from the Men in Black horror comic be written into the movie because he read that and he liked the comic better. <laughs> what? <laughs> No, I oh. refuse to believe that Tommy yeah. Jones has read a comic book in his life. He did it for research when he signed on to the movie, saw the comic was completely different, and it was like, I like how scary and cold Kay is in the in the comic. Can we work some of my favorite lines in there? Whenever they go out to the farmhouse and he says, oh, let's linger around outside, gives them all, enough time to get the wrong impression. That's something Kay says in the first issue. Yep. <laughs> Where the men in black are pure evil. That's amazing. I I assumed Tommy Lee Jones was like sitting somewhere in a room just reading Cormac McCarthy, and that's that's it. The pocket. And oh, to- kills me. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious seeing hearing Save that for later. It's hilarious hearing stories of Tommy Lee Jones on the set of The Fugitive being like, no, the US Marshals wouldn't do that. <laughs> Shutting the only time. The only time Tommy Lee Jones didn't like all of this uh, rigmarole was Batman Forever. Yeah. Weird. And that's the one I remember the most of. He couldn't tolerate that buffoonery. <laughs> Let's get back to this movie. I do really enjoy If this were just a two-part series, how well this loops everything back together. You end yeah. in the basement. That was the whole point of the first one. It ends with a literal saw taking out the bad guy. Uh, only in this time, it's not a foot. It's his throat. It ties very nicely. Uh, unfortunately, there's like eight more saws after this, so all of that <laughs> nice rhyming doesn't doesn't matter anymore. The meter gets lost, but yeah, at the I, moment, it was it was a very good wedding of the two movies. I would go as far as to say I don't think this movie would work anywhere near as well if you didn't have the symmetry of them returning to the bathroom. Yeah, you needed it because you you well, need something you that, that you know the, actually feel like a saw sequel since nobody's really returning other than the guy who got off the floor at the end yeah that you barely spend any time with you saw him in a bed for one scene and you know leaving the room plus you get the triumphant like zepp's theme going on so it's like oh man now it's a saw movie which is fascinating hearing hello zepp play over something that isn't a final reveal yeah a thing that's just that's just a, a trope of the series immediately. Like, oh, they actually hadn't nailed down the formula of the iconography yet. I mean, that's that's so true for so many franchises. You always think, oh, the first one sets all the rules. Oh, almost never. It's almost always the second or even the third movie that'll, that'll yeah. connect all those pieces. Think of like Friday the 13th. The first one has so little to do really stylistically with all the other ones. 
you know, that's almost a murder mystery because we can't find out that it's Mrs. Voorhees doing the killing until the very end. Yeah, it's a whodunit. Uh, you obviously don't have Jason Voorhees in a mask and his big stalking slasher scenes in the same sense. Yeah, it's a whodunit. Uh, and even even the mask itself, the classic mask, that's not a thing until part three, which is wild because you just assume that's got to be like an out the gate thing because it's such a major part of that character. Yeah, to, to, in a much smaller scale, but this made me have my own fucking personal Mandela effect, a freak out. The Superman magnet on the the refrigerator in Seinfeld doesn't show up until halfway through the fucking series. That is wild, but I'm pretty sure most people don't watch the first two or three seasons of Seinfeld. I don't even know oh, if they that air those on show TV. Up. That doesn't show up until after they've pitched the pilot. That's like at the what? end of season four, the Superman Holy magnet shit. shows up. It's not even between seasons. With the statues there. There in an episode. Yeah, I, If I remember my uh, 90s lore correctly, I believe <laughs> the magnet was sent to them by DC because of the Superman statue. Yes. This is a moneymaker. Put it up there. Jerry Seinfeld is like a big Superman fan, so it checks out. Why we got the Bizarro Superman statue in Bizarro Jerry's apartment. Why Patrick Warburton was Superman once. Dina Meyer's reaction, total freak out at that, was uh, uh, so gold (laughs) to me. Uh, One thing I think this movie does very well compared to later entries in the Saw films was wrapping up its mysteries. Yeah, we we would see this in other Saw films where a character's fate would be left undetermined, so they either could explore it later on or keep fans kind of on the hook guessing what might be there. I think a lot of it was just okay. We need to leave ourselves threads for sequels, so we'll we'll just be a little messier with how everything wraps up. Saw two doesn't do that really. Like they they find Daniel, like he's in the safe. There we go. That problem's been resolved. Uh, I guess you do have the fate of Detective Matthews, which they have to spend a while getting back to. Uh, but in the but context of this time, film, just assumed just that was going to be like part three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this so is the it's... last close-ended Saw film. I mean, three still ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, there's still a lot of unresolved things, things to pick up in the movie. Like, when's that? When's the tape covered in wax going to come back into play? Yeah. For another four fucking movies. And... Um, this is kind of just it's frustrating because they do have to give themselves some leeway for future films. They knew they were going to keep making them, but it, it just doesn't feel as satisfying when you're like, who the fuck is this character? Oh, they introduced that mystery two movies ago. I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh, they accidentally Marvel movied themselves somehow. <laughs> Where at you, you feel like you have to watch a uh, recap video for the entire series. Anytime you sit down to one of these. <laughs> On the other hand, it was probably good for some of their publicity, or certain fans loved it, because it gave them something to endlessly talk about for years on message boards. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I, I had a fucking ball putting the pieces together and stuff until I mostly checked out after watching five. Yeah, I realized like, oh, okay, it's either so obvious we all got it right, or all of us are way off the point here. It was it was wild some of the things people would come up on IMDb on the boards back then. I, I, it was my favorite to go there because it was so fucking wild. Uh, you could tell a lot of these people were just insane or like we're not watching the same movie as you. <laughs> Honestly, uh, the thing I would compare it to is like when Twin Peaks was airing. Kind of, yeah. 
Like it's and it's really rare that there is a film series and not a television show or a book or anything, just an actual movie series where a big component to each of these standalone movies is an unfolding mystery. Like I can't really compare it to much else. No. Uh, unintentional bit of comedy here on my subs. It just cuts off jigsaw saying pissing blood to just say, it's not long now till your son is pissing. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably uh, is a little more truthful than pissing blood. I, I feel like, uh, Jigsaw might have been lying there because he's trying to convince me he's got, you know, the fucking nerve agent in his system still. But much funnier if Jigsaw is just monitoring how much piss is coming out of all of his victims at any given time. But by the way, I am very amused that they specifically point out, uh, well, Jigsaw specifically says he's using the gas from the Onsenrikyo Saren gas. <laughs> <laughs> Like, which implies that Jigsaw found out about that some at some point and made a note of it in one of his Jigsaw notebooks. He would be a fan. Like, one last thing to point out here a- before, as we're fading out, though, I, I love that last lingering shot as the camera pulls out of Jigsaw, eyes closed, all battered and bloodied, kind of half smiling because he knows he's won. Like, With the pullback of- like. Like, nothing but darkness around. It's a very old movie, which I like. Yeah. Jigsaw, like, it very weirds me out, very much weirds me out when people are like, no, 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 he's, 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 like, a good guy. I'm like, Jigsaw is so happy there he's that Donnie Wahlberg was a piece of shit and got destroyed. <laughs> he was just like, oh, my plan worked. I got to murder that guy. Yeah, he, You know he was just killing all those people in that house. I mean, he was giving them the option of not dying, but he was just punishing yeah. them for being awful. <laughs> It's still amazing to me that the kid actually survived, considering how fucked up everything was in that house. Like, I would say nine out of ten times, this all goes sideways. Oh, it's crazy it's- watch rewatching this movie and just thinking of Amanda as essentially an AI companion in a video game, just telling you <laughs> how to solve the puzzles if you linger around too long. <laughs> Rust this puzzle requires water. <laughs> She's just clicking the screen everywhere. No, not that Rust. Uh... On a fanboy level, how are we rating Amanda's game over? It's good. I've liked I, I like it. I like her game over. Yeah, considering like it's a pretty steep drop off after Amanda in terms of game overs, I think she's definitely got the number. Game over. <laughs> there there's a lot worse out there for sure. I mean, hers it's a choice, so maybe I just don't like the choice. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's 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 more detached than the one that we got in the first she film. She has disdain. Nobody can match Tobin Bell's, though. That's, uh, that's, that's the only thing. You have, to, like, you have to kind of separate it. He's got the gravitas in his voice. Like, no yeah, he sounds like he's doing, he's doing like a dubbed-over voice. Like, no, that's just what the dude sounds like. <laughs> Work shit. Also, just, just to talk about, just go back to the ending and like, the Amanda twist again. As obvious as it is, and as much as like I imagine it does pop into everyone's head the first time they w- watch that movie, this that script gets so many points from me, and just like just the way even the movie is put together in the editing room, using the iconography and the things you expect from symmetry 
with the first film, Against You, where you've already heard yeah. Jigsaw say game over. You've already heard the Saw theme play over something dramatic happening. You think the movie's over. And then the cycle just picks back up again. And just those last, like, two minutes, I... Uh. The movie basically has an after credit scene as its own ending. <laughs> But I'm I'm still just so fascinated with the alternative version of this film series where this one doesn't end on a twist. Like they make it straight up. How, what the other Saw films would have been like if they tried to approach them straight. And I I don't know if the films would have ran as long just because that gave them so much momentum. We already yeah. discussed how we kind of got tired of the twists and how they don't work as well. But I think that drove a lot of people to be like, fuck, I got to see the next one to see what the twist is anyways. Like you, you know, wanted I, to see that. I think part of the big problem, and we'll like get into this as we as we go through them, and we'll we'll see it unfold, is the idea of the series itself being one gigantic puzzle that you can start to piece together as you watch each one is really fucking cool. The problem is, I don't think you can do each film has a twist ending and that at the same time. Yeah. Minor aside, yay, Queens of the Stone Age. I forgot, I totally forgot this was part of the credit song until I revisited this movie. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, 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 now I'm into it. Uh, one other piece, I never got to squeeze into the commentary itself, but goddamn, I love the poster for this film. Some of the Saw posters get a little out there that I think are maybe a little too weird for their own good, but yeah. two, right to the point, just Perfect. the two severed fingers with a white background, like kind of gross clinical it, it's so cool it's so to the point i love it i remember ah, i knew it okay sorry i'm looking at the credits now it's the uncle version of burn the witch because when i heard this i'm like i don't this doesn't sound like how i remember it and i was right <laughs> my memory is working after all uh anecdote yeah, about the poster the day is, that, um... that poster was dropped that was like all anyone on the horror internet talked about for 24 yes. hours like, <laughs> well this is the greatest poster i've ever seen <laughs> so cool just go with simple go with simple a uh, cool anecdote apparently just a couple months ago um darren bowsman and his wife were at a restaurant and started talking to somebody um and they started talking to her about like uh weird jobs they've all had and it turns out she was the graphic designer for the saw 2 poster and those are her fingers <laughs> What a weird this is your life. Like that's like Balisman's version of a doctor meeting an adult he delivered as a child. <laughs> <laughs> You're that's a heart like, surgeon? I had my heart replaced as a kid. Did you know that was my heart? What? And then the guy turns into ash. <laughs> and the and the funny thing is, is you look at it from like, oh, Balsman's perspective of Oh, he was talking to he he directed Saw 2, and he's talking to the person who was the fingers on the Saw 2 poster. Then you flip it around, it's like, it's kind of weird she's talking to Darren Lynn Bowsman, who's introduced himself to her at this point. <laughs> and she has no goddamn idea that he directed the movie that she made the posters for. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing the poster, you're not involved with the production really beyond yeah, that. Like, you're not. It's just weird to think about. Weird. Yeah. Uh, a very small aside, I, I'm watching the version of this movie that's on Amazon Prime, so it has a bunch of special features afterwards. As soon as the credit ends, it cuts to 
John Kramer sitting in a chair and he abruptly turns his head to the camera. It's it's like the surprise marmot meme, but with <sighs> Jigsaw. And I was doing my best, Mike, to just not lose my shit laughing while you were talking about <laughs> it's uh it's Ash at the end of the Evil Dead uh reboot movie. <laughs> Groovy. Groovy. He just turns and says, Game over. Game over. They should. That's how they should end Saw movies. If t- ten doesn't end with him doing an extra game over at the the post credit part, what are we even doing? I, I want ten to end with the reveal that Jigsaw had a twin brother, <laughs> and that's who died in three. And we can just get some Jim normal Kramer? goddamn Saw ah, sequels. It's it's, it's fucking. So it's, it's the end funny. of X Men three. It's going to be so funny when Saw ten comes out and makes like a surprise eighty million dollars. And then they don't know what to do. Like, fuck, we're still trapped the same way we've always been trapped. Like, like, they're, they're going to be forced to either be like, Hoffman is still alive and we're making a Hoffman movie. Or they're going to have to do some shenanigans to bring fucking John Kramer back again. Like another somehow prequel Man movie. Man is alive! I keep saying, I, I'm waiting for them to John dip their Kramer's toes into something in the, that dumb. Put John Kramer's brain in the doll. Finally close the loop and have Billy <laughs> yes. the doll. Oh, it's like a Wolfenstein Hitler thing. Look, I there's got to come a point where they just go supernatural with it, right? Like they just say, "Fuck it." There's there's now a vengeful ghost that traps people. I'm waiting for the you know Jigsaw in space moment for this franchise. Somehow we're ten in, and they've never even had to go direct to video. That's impressive. Hellraiser couldn't do it. Let them have their space entry or a clone or a long lost brother. I, the I don't care. Let's yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know what the tracking's looking like. I'm going to guess the new Saw probably doesn't do the world's best numbers because the last two have done very poorly. And Tobin Bell I also like just assume years any old. movie coming out now is probably going to bomb. Yeah. You never know. 2023 like, does not like movies. But, hey, man. Oppenheimer's doing great. Barbie's doing great. Guardians did great. Uh, the horror movies generally have done pretty well, except for Last Voyage. It's it's uh, it seems like it's been very off or on. You're either making a shit ton more money than they expected, or you're doing awful. Yeah, there is it, no it, middle ground this year. Yeah, it also helps whenever there's a meme about your movie release. That's true. I saw where uh, the Ninja Turtle Troll was trending. How are the turtles doing? I thought that opening was kind of soft for them. No, they're doing good. <laughs> it's like talking about a friend, <laughs> like a mutual friend. <laughs> the turtles are doing good. They're they doing are my no, friends, just got a new place. <laughs> I don't think you understand how I feel about the Ninja Turtles. They just got a new place off of Atwood. It's really cozy. It's it's uh, great. The rent's really good. <laughs> they they just got their shit. their prints at uh, Grauman's now. Delightful. <laughs> just looked it up. Uh, oh no, this is gonna be the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Boo! I don't care about TMNT. Apparently that means $95.6 million. I, I, I don't hate it. I'm just saying I'm not looking at 9. it right now. 9. 5. You should be looking at it right now. <laughs> uh, it is currently grossed $109 million in the U.S. and Canada, and then an additional $45 million around the world. So it's up to $154.2 million bucks right now. Well, if they've just uh, greenlit a video game. Oh, is it going to be like the Saw 2 one where it's in canon, but no one really pays attention to it? I still want us to do a this commentary to bring for this back a around of Saw, of the Saw video games. I think that would be uh, fun. It would be fun, but I don't want to drink more Malort. You don't have to but drink Malort for a video game. I have integrity, Mike. Until said otherwise, Tap's son is still out there trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Tap could still be alive. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll see him in Saw 10. Who knows? He's down place. in Mexico. He's canonically strapped to a gurney in a mental institution somewhere. <laughs> He's unkillable. He's completely unkillable. Zip's alive, too. Prove me wrong. 
Did we just see his body in that basement? In that ba- uh, dummy. It was a dummy. <laughs> uh, you got me there. I can't prove it's not a dummy. Everybody, everybody in the Saw movie is a dummy until proven otherwise. You know who's a terrible main character? Jeff. We'll get there. We'll get there. That's the next one. <laughs> next one. I think that's enough Saw for one night. Uh, the, the movie's already over. We can just leave. <laughs> yes. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. If you would like to hear more Box Office Pulp, you can find us on boxofficepulp.com or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, except for Stitcher. I, I don't think you can get podcasts there anymore. So technically we're on Pandora right. now. Ooh, ritzy. Yeah, go to pod.link slash boxofficepulp. You can also find all our links there if you don't want to go to our main yeah. website. Also, if you like this, please rate and review us. It helps a lot. Does it? Is my life actually impacted if I get rated? Yes. Oh, shit. Oh, haven't you ever played up. Hot or Not, that old anything. website? No, that's pretty much how that works. No, I haven't. No one ever picked I'm, me. I'm apparently living the life of the Amish when I'm not recording this show. You hate the Amish. I know. I hate myself. Anyways, Game over. That's been box office, Paul. Game over. <laughs> that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Jamie, give me an Amish rendition of Zep's theme. Oh, more of a Gregorian chant, but I'll give you points. It also kind of sounded like you were going to Tarzan Boy for a second. <laughs> <laughs> That's next movie. Hey. Zap, zap, zap of the jungle. Watch out for that song. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. It's the rules. <laughs> I like, Mike, you saying it like you're one of the dinosaurs from fucking the Flintstones. Like, it's a living. Tell me that's it's not the, the delivery of that line, though. That's literally what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.